I would just try and think about it really intensely to just be like, why does this even hurt? It doesn't hurt, it just feels. Hi, this is Alana, and this is, wait, how do you spell that? A rare disease podcast produced by Patient Worthy. Today, we have a special guest back, Sunny, our writer and our illustrator, who was on an earlier episode about self-care during the coronavirus. And she is joining me today to talk specifically about mindfulness and meditation and what research is behind it and where it's useful, but also why it's annoying to tell people to meditate. And here she is. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, hopefully our, we're recording via Zoom because um, of the global pandemic. Uh, so hopefully our audio is okay. Um, we've been messing with it a lot today. So I'm gonna uh, back up and talk a little bit about, I guess, meditation and mindfulness. And I'm kind of using both phrases right now because mindfulness is a lot of the time what we think about or what I think about when I think about meditation. And a lot of time when I say research on meditation, I'm talking specifically about mindfulness meditation. But the term meditation is actually much broader. It's like saying meditation is like saying exercise and saying mindfulness is like saying basketball. Um, so what would it mean? What would you define that as? Oh, good question. Let me think what it means. I actually, the exercise thing, I did not come up with saying it that way. What's the definition of meditation? Definition. You know what the definition of meditation is? What? The action or practice of meditating. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I think of meditation, um, I'm going to look for a better definition, but I'm also just going to go off the cuff on like what I would um I think of mindfulness as being sort of like awareness of the present and awareness of where you stand in the present and what you're feeling and everything that's going on meditation I think of as I would say I think of it as being focused direction of your thought like sort of controlling your thoughts intentionally controlling sounds like a weird word but um like just intentionality as it applies to what's going on in your brain I feel like it's almost also like not just focus but focusing on the mind there's this meta element of like you are thinking about being here but Mm -hmm. you're getting rid of the thoughts you're not concentrating on a music piece you're not concentrating on your science textbook you're concentrating on what is going on in your brain flow (laughs) want to say what uh wikipedia says it is i agree also um meditation is a practice where an individual uses a technique such as mindfulness or focusing the mind on a particular object thought or activity to train attention and awareness and achieve a mentally clear and emotionally calm and stable state you know it's interesting probably where i diverge the most from that sentence is where it says and achieve a mentally clear and emotionally calm and stable state. Just because I think that when I do it, maybe I am seeking to be emotionally calm and stable, but that it, to me, something that's big in meditation, I'm, I'm going too far too fast, is sort of, but um, something that's big, it isn't necessarily that it's emotionally calm, but that it is whatever it is. It's sort of like that if you're upset, you can say like, yes, I'm upset. And that is what I'm feeling. And I'm looking at that directly. I feel like it's more like you're almost, you're not trying to change it. 
you're trying to be an observer yeah from the inside to see what's happening what what are the thoughts coming in and out what yeah. is what am i feeling but you're it's almost like you're trying to not get to engage in any of them you're trying to keep them mm-hmm. all at a distance yeah so that you can see it because when you're wrapped up in it you can't necessarily see it because you are it I agree. I I also think at this point we should back up because um because I think we're having the conversation of two people who both have been at least mildly to moderately engaged in meditation for some time and um I know that's actually a pretty recent thing to me. I think I actually only started meditating I think in 2019, I think it's been less than a year, maybe about a year, um, where I I had literally, I just was on the podcast app and I saw a podcast called 10% Happier. And I was like, well, sure. Like I would like to be 10% happier. Like who wouldn't? And it's with Dan Harris. And um, I just started like kind of mindlessly listening to all these podcasts on mindfulness and meditation while I was like cleaning up and stuff. And then one day I was like, why am I listening to all of this meditation, um, meditation podcast, but I'm not meditating. And I think that prior, um, to listening to Dan Harris's content and Dan Harris is very, um, he came to meditation late in life. He has a very, his tagline is like meditation for fidgety skeptics. Like, um, I think that at some point in my life, my, uh, I maybe I, I was a little bit biased with meditation in a way that I think our culture kind of primes us to be to sort of see it maybe as something that was kind of like placebo-ish and that people were suggesting in place of like real science and that like maybe didn't have scientific backing and I think there's a lot of reasons that it has that stigma in our culture but like the more I learned about it the more I was like wait this actually does have research behind it I mentioned this earlier when we were talking, but um, there's this very, there's this thing that's cited a lot that's based off of this Harvard study about how um, eight weeks of mindfulness uh, produce noticeable changes in the gray matter of the brain. And I actually, I think I have something pulled up um, in preparation for this. It's an article on it in the Washington Post. And one of the researchers is saying that they found differences in brain volume after eight weeks in five different regions of the brain of two groups. And uh, in the group that learned meditation, they found thickening in four regions, including um, the part that's involved with mind wandering and self-relevance, a part that assists in learning cognition, memory, and emotional regulation, a part that's uh, associated with perspective taking, empathy, and compassion, and part of the brain where a lot of uh, regulatory neurotransmitters are produced. And I'm not reading exactly what she said, but if I was, it would say things like temporoparietal junction. It was this thing where it was like, wait, this is something that's free and real. And also beyond all the research, it's like been practiced um, in non-Western cultures for years. And like maybe part of the bias is a bias against things that aren't Western culture and our practices uh and I was like wait this is something that like is totally useful for me because I like everybody else want to reduce anxiety and be more focused and feel better and I think it's I think it's relevant to anybody struggling with mental health it's relevant to anybody living in the time of the coronavirus pandemic in which case everyone's kind of feeling 
there's like not a person in the world who's not feeling anxious right now. And it's relevant to the rare disease community for multiple reasons, both because because there is a relationship between mindfulness and how to manage and live with pain. And there's a relationship between rare disease and mental illness, and mental illness um, because there's a really high incidence of mental illness in the rare disease community, which is something I know that you have written about. Yeah. So should I go right into that or I was going to say something else? You can, you can just say both. Yeah, I guess like I found there was a resistance to medication on what you said because there's this kind of resistance to patience. It's not this immediately rewarding practice. Rather, it's this built up, it's slow in the 10 minutes that you're doing it, 15 minutes doing it, you're not doing anything. And I think there's this need for productivity mm-hmm. for people in general. So it feels like you're just stopping and all of these thoughts keep bombarding you too that are like, hey, like you should think about this, you should think about this. And I think it's actually a really nice practice in patience, which I think pulls over into anxiety, which is just calming yourself, not, it's not really calming yourself, but taking a pause to observe it without reacting. Yeah. Um, which I guess kind of gets meditation, um, which is how it's used to treat chronic pain, because there are, they talk about how there are kind of two types of pain. So a doctor who studied meditation and chronic pain, Dr. Danny Penman, talked about there being two types of pain, the primary pain, which is the result of the injury and the illness itself. Um, and that's just purely physical, whereas there's the secondary, which is the pain, mind's reaction to it. Um, and that's not to say it's in your head. It's just a natural process that does intensify suffering while being not out of your control. How do I say this? While being... I guess uh, there's a secondary process which magnifies the suffering that you're going through, which I guess is what mindfulness is meant to uh, address because it gives you this outside perspective instead of, I guess, jumping into the pain and intensifying it. It gives you space from it. No, well, something I really liked about this article was um, I remember when you wrote it, because it was a subject that I was curious about. Something I liked was that it described both the uses and the limitations of meditation when it comes to chronic pain, of saying like, yes, it can help this part, like this secondary part of pain, which is what our brain does with pain that magnifies the experience and intensifies it. But it doesn't doesn't present meditation as something that's just going to stop pain because pain is still going to happen. And I think... um, like that distinction and like drawing sort of the clear boundary of what you can expect from meditation when it comes to chronic pain, but also why it might be worth trying out. I think that boundary is important and it's something that I liked about the article. And also it makes sense. It's like pain enters the brain and like, what do you do with it? How can you, how can you approach it in a way that might be the most helpful to you? No. And I think life is a lot of self-perpetuating circles. So you mm-hmm. feel bad, so you think about the hurt. And I found it very interesting. I remember reading one time that, um, and I remember I read one time that um, a lot of kids will get to meditative processes naturally. If you like speak to a bunch of kids, whether they've tried out a bunch of these processes, uh, you'll find out that they'll to varying levels have figured out like 
different parts of it. And I actually remember as a kid, like whenever I'd feel super cold, because I would get super cold or hurt, I would just try and think about it really intensely to just be like, why does this even hurt? It doesn't hurt. It just feels. And yeah. It's interesting. You get to <laughs> no, it's just, I definitely <laughs> came up with meditation as a kid too. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah, almost I was almost like it. annoyed when I found out it really existed because I was like this was yeah. my idea. <laughs> yeah. And and it was very effective. I just thought about feeling cold until it just felt. Mm-hmm. It didn't it didn't feel unpleasant. It was just like what an intense understanding of what that feeling means. Mm-hmm. Um, which is an interesting way of doing it instead of like going away from the feeling you just hit it right in the head you just look right at it mm-hmm. with like a neutrality I think I think one of the misconceptions um that I hear with meditation um because I got into meditation and like I hate this but I also instantly became annoying and I was like did you guys know about meditation yeah. <laughs> and um and something that I heard a lot from friends was it's like, oh, but isn't that when you just go and think about nothing? And like, or friends were like, you know, my mind wanders so much that like, I don't think I've ever achieved meditation. And then there was this part of me that's like, okay, first of all, meditation isn't something you achieve. It's something you practice. Um, and, uh, but also just, I guess not thinking about anything isn't actually the point. Like, it's not just this big blank void or something where you're actually expected to be able to see a big blank void it's something where you you're almost like you're taking a step back in your mind and I mean the mindfulness meditation I do it's very sort of like thinking about your breathing thinking about the sensations that are happening in your body but then I always use guided meditations I'll come back to that later but um there's always a point where they say like if your mind wanders, which it will do, because that's a normal thing for your mind to do, because your mind, like, is made to do that. Oh, like, just bring it say, back. Yeah. Hmm? Like, I feel like when you say that, like, meditation isn't achieved, and that's true in a way, like, there's plenty of room for error. That's sort of the point, is that you're always practicing. At the same time, it's like you are achieving something, which is, like, you're bettering the skill. And I think yeah. people will say, like, I can't do it. And it's like, yeah, because you practice French, you can't speak French. You need to put in the hours and then you'll speak French. It's like, same with meditation. You well, that it's, I, I think I guess with the thing with achieving it is that it's sort of like achieving it sort of sounds like there's something that you're going to take home at the end of the day. That's like, as opposed to just, it's something that you work on every day and that no one, like people who do this who write books about it aren't like I'm the perfect meditator it's just yeah. something but it's, just, it's an exercise I think of it as like an exercise I'm not the first person to use that analogy I used it earlier today but it's like if you're just um doing bicep curls with your arm and you're like your arm is getting bigger because you're you keep on using that muscle and when I think about meditation and sort of when people are like oh I can't not have thoughts and it's like the point isn't to not have thoughts the point is to recognize when a thought is coming up recognizing how it makes you feel and then like redirecting back to where you were um and just sort of being like oh a thought about like a thought about my mom came into my head like a thought about school came into my head um now I'm coming back to the breath but I just saw that happen and what um, this analogy that I've used when I was trying to explain this to a friend is like, if you are sitting down and you're like trying to look at a tree and you're like, my, my 
pure goal right now is to look at a tree and like sometimes a dog will pass and your eye might follow the dog but then you'll be like oh no wait like we're looking at the tree we're not looking at the dog so you'll come back to the tree um this might not be as good of a metaphor as i thought but um, uh but but you keep on returning to the tree and then if you're doing that as a practice for you know like five ten minutes a day i do pretty short meditations like uh i would probably like do five to ten minutes on a weekday if you're doing that regularly then like you are strengthening this part of your brain that knows how to notice when it's wandering and bring it back to where it was where you were trying to direct it to go and like you know it's like if you were doing bicep curls your biceps would get stronger and if you're doing an exercise that takes your brain back to what it was what it was focusing on then that part of your brain will get stronger and um yeah like it's just it's helping you learn how to get your brain to do the things that um maybe you want it to do like in addition to mindfulness meditation sometimes i do um loving kindness meditations or like self-compassion meditations where you just practice thinking um kind things to yourself and others and wishing the world well and it's like sure like if you practice thinking good thoughts for 10 minutes a day then like maybe it'll be a little bit easier like maybe that part of your brain is gonna grow because you're exercising it i just choose random people every day when i do it sometimes i choose the guy in the apartment behind me like um i'm just like i i wish him health i wish him peace um and you're sort of you're practicing using these different parts of your brain and um you know like that's a useful thing there's more things to say here or I can move to the next part. Um, we can talk about the mental health. I don't know. Oh, yeah, with mental health. Um, yeah, I, I mentioned this earlier, but you did. Um, we've both written about the relationship between rare disease and um, mental health issues. And I don't know if you want to expand on that right now or. Yeah, so I guess meditation is particularly useful for mental health issues because that's when feelings tend to become so amplified and you most, I guess, need to take distance from the feelings. Um, but I guess one thing that was interesting writing about my, about the rare disease mental health overlap is that there's just so many reasons that are different and complex. It's not just because some rare diseases cause this, like cause an over, or sorry, overproduce cortisol or they create too much of a hormone or something. It's because you might not be able to go out on the weekends and you might be missing out on like your fun girls night that you do every Thursday because you have a doctor's appointment. And it might be because of whatever you just learned about your future isn't what you had planned for and where you thought you were going. There's just so many parts of rare disease that just cause stress, I think more than anything. And then there's just another, I guess, axis, which is the stress that comes naturally with a rare disease because there's not a big community. So it's not like you can tap into all the people around you who have this and share that. I mean, you might have a few, but it, it's uncommon. And maybe you're not being believed. Maybe you haven't been diagnosed, so you can't concisely explain what you're feeling. Yeah. There's so many parts of being rare that are specifically triggering. Yeah, no, there's like trauma within the hospital system. Rare disease 
any chronic illness, but, um, you know, we're focused on rare disease. Uh, and mental health have such a big overlap zone. I think that it's incomplete to talk about mental health, or no, to talk about rare disease and the experience of living with it without talking about mental health. I think that's a conversation that's lacking. And and I think that, you know, mindfulness and meditation, it's not, it's not the whole mental health scene. Like there's a lot of different, um, there's a lot of different treatments that are needed that are often, um, like often professional treatment is something that people need. And I would not guide someone to forego that, but uh, it's it's a little it's a little part of that diet. It's um, the tool in the toolkit. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's vitamin C. Like having vitamin C doesn't mean that you don't also need protein, but needing protein doesn't mean you don't need vitamin C too. It is it's one component in this much larger scheme of how we deal with the really big and complicated question of how to treat mental health issues. Um, which, you know, we're all still figuring out individually and as a society, and especially yeah. right now. I guess because some rare disease patients might have anxiety or extra stress or depression as a result of the rare disease, it can be sometimes easy to, to not think it's you. Like, to be like, there are people who have anxiety, but that's a different the list of symptoms for most rare diseases. It's always physical. It's never... Mm-hmm. Just something that specifically triggers a hormone or something that causes stress or whatnot. So it can be easy to, I don't know, not give that part enough time, mm-hmm. not give it enough priority, I guess, because the physical stuff seems much more dire when actually the two are one system. And yeah, yeah, no, if you're, yeah, if your mind is unhealthy or not healthy, unhealthy sounds like such a judgmental term, but like if yeah. your mind isn't getting all the support it needs, it's hard for it to give to give the body the support it needs. Um, and it's also not as fun to, it's not as fun of an experience. It's like, we're, we're all alive for the period of time that we're alive and we're experiencing it. And um, we want that to be as good as it can be. Um, like as good and kind and in line with ourselves and our values as we're able to make it. And yeah, no, it's like, I think that mental health isn't, huge and often overlooked part of the rare disease experience and I think mindfulness mindfulness is growing in how much it's recognized within um you know mental health fields I think a lot of mental health professionals take it seriously but I do think that there's also still some there like a big part of the stigma is because it's historically not historically I mean maybe historically (laughs) it's it's been used a lot of the time in a way that's dismissive uh, in a way that's like, oh, like, if you're depressed, just meditate or like, just go on a run. Uh, and it's like running, you know, exercise also has a positive and steady effect on mental health. Um, and mindfulness does too. But if you're phrasing it, like, just do this, like, I think like the just part of it, and also just telling someone else what to do is super annoying, um, no matter what it is. Um, but, uh, you know, and when it's coming from someone who's, like, not a doctor or not your doctor, uh, giving you advice is, can be, like, pretty infuriating. And so I think that there's a lot of pushback against 
that type of rhetoric that I think people are rightly pretty wary of. That um, there's, a, there's sort of, I guess, sort of managing the space where you can both accept that pushback, which makes sense because it's, um, you know, it's not, it's not cool to tell someone to just meditate if they have a mental health issue that is larger than maybe what meditation has the capacity to resolve. Um, but it's also sort of important to, if you think meditation works for you, um, like it might not be for everybody, but to know that it's there for you and that it's free and that it's something that, um, you know, there's research on, maybe it's gonna make you 10% happier. Um, there's a 40, I think it's 46 study meta, uh, 46 study meta analysis. Um, I heard it about it on Science Versus and I'll look for it for the show notes. Um, that found that mindfulness practice uh, had impacts that were pretty on par with um, a lot of the common antidepressants that are used. Uh, and that's, that's kind of huge. Um, it's like stack one and stack the other together, like maybe you're getting somewhere. <laughs> like, um, it, uh, and also not everyone has access to um, medication. And so I think it's still important to know that it's there, but also not to, I guess, get too involved with someone with what you don't know about someone else's mental health or to take on too active of a prescriber role and if you're not someone's doctor. No, I was just about to add one more thing. Um, it, this isn't a big thing, but um, I think something that I kind of had to realize, I said that like once I got into meditation, I got really annoying and I was like, oh, everyone has to meditate now. Um, like, because I would, I would see what I had, felt had improved for me and then a friend would come to me and like in the back of my head I'd be like I can't say it but I do think she needs to meditate um, <laughs> and um something and like like I knew that was some part of me that I I had to I had to work on um by meditating it out <laughs> um, but uh you know I think something that I feel like I've come to realize is that meditation isn't going to look the same for everybody. We talked about how we had both figured it out when we were kids. And I think that's something that I find extremely meditative is drawing um, because it's like very external. Like you're just focused on the sensation of seeing this one thing. Um, and um, you know, when I, I was going on a walk and I was thinking about how I've always gone on walks and I was like, even before I got into meditation, I was kind of using these as a meditative practice and realizing that there's ways that you can practice mindfulness that aren't like going to like downloading a calm app and playing ocean waves and like following someone's voice. Like it doesn't have to be on a timer or on an app or on your phone. Uh, and there's ways that you might be doing it already in your day-to-day -day life without labeling it like that. Do you, do you use guided meditation? um yeah but I also do that yeah I almost only do guided meditations <laughs> um uh, I feel like the times I've done unguided I have a really clear memory of that space like when I first moved to Spain I would do 20 minutes every day in wow, my room that's a long practice in my opinion I'd always heard that just like do a lot and I had a lot of free time so I was like mm -hmm. okay let's do it and 
I just have such a clear image of laying in my bed in that whole space and everything that that contained like and things would come up and go out but it was just very much like I've dedicated this time to be here and nowhere else that's the point and there's something very relaxing of just being totally alone like mm-hmm. I've dedicated these 20 minutes to me this space and nobody can interrupt it yeah nobody's voice nobody's thoughts nothing I've said that was stupid last week it's just all no I already decided like this time is just this yeah I have a strong memory of like going to like Hebrew school as a kid and like being in the car and I didn't know I was meditating what I like was like I was like okay you just have to stare at the seat really intensely and your brain does something (laughs) um but um you know, when you were talking about that, after like 20 minutes of not having to do something, I actually, I get a lot of anxiety around, or not anxiety, but something I've noticed a lot when I meditate is that I'm very impatient for it to be over um, because I want to get back to what I'm doing. Uh, and like I said, like I have a pretty short practice on weekdays. Like I do about five minutes. And um, so I'll be like doing that, like maybe in my lunch break or something. And there'll always be a part of me that's like, no, you have to stop meditating so you can reply to your emails or like you have to get your project in or something like that. And what I always tell myself is that I'm like, if you're turning in your project late, it is not because you took five minutes out of your day to meditate. Like there is some other reason that that's happening. Like you should be able to do both or like you should, sounds pretty judgmental, but like um, you, you are able to do both. And one might actually like meditating might, help make you more productive and help you get those emails out. And there's so much of our time that we spend doing things that we don't even remember doing, switching between tabs on our computer a billion times. And I'm like, you know, these five minutes I'm taking to meditate are not stealing that much time from me. And they're very valuable five minutes probably for all the rest. Yeah. And I think also, you know, it's like we've talked a lot about mental health and how this is a thing in the mental health toolkit and, uh, you know, rare disease, and right now the world is in crisis, and each one of us individually are also in crisis, um, is using meditation to sit with bad feelings, um, which is something I've been doing a lot, where it's like, something I find really cool is when it, the meditation does sort of like a body scan, and it asks where you're feeling in your body, and you think about, like, is it in my chest, is it in my stomach, like, what is the energy in that like, um, like, do I feel like I'm tensing something? because I almost sort of feel like it's turning the light on, uh, on a monster. So you're like, yeah, like I do have this bad feeling and it feels like a tension in my chest. But now I know what it is. Like I've looked at it. I know about how big it is. I know, um, I know how it feels. And instead of running away from it and not being able to really know what I'm running away from, I've sort of like made eye contact with my bad feelings said like, yes, this doesn't feel good, but I will survive it. It will pass and it will change. And I just kind of have to learn how to tolerate it and let it be here for as long as I'm not able to make it go away. And also like knowing that like, you know, suffering is an inevitable part of the human condition. And how do we let it be and not, um, like not be afraid of it more than we have to be afraid of it because I don't think we can fully 
you know, meditation is not going to make you a person who doesn't experience the full range of human emotions, but it might give you a bigger vessel to hold them in. Um, I didn't come up with the vessel metaphor either. <laughs> uh, an instructor of mine did. Um, or no, she also probably didn't come up with it, but that's where I heard it. <laughs> um, but I guess talking about the guided meditations, uh, the reason I was thinking about that was partially one reason I do like them is when I listened to that science versus podcast episode on meditation, which wasn't totally like when I listened to the science versus episode on it, it, um, something they talked about it meditation as opposed to some other things has few negative side effects, but it's not impossible to kind of freak yourself out while you're meditating and something that they found was that people who used guided meditations or guided courses generally had an easier time not running into um, things that were emotionally more than they were looking for while meditating. And so I'm just throwing that in there because maybe someone listening to this is interested in meditating but is maybe a little afraid of something or maybe isn't really prepared to just dive right in. And I think knowing that having guided meditation might make your experience go a little bit better, uh, especially if you're new to it, is useful. You don't have to do it, but it might be good. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you're going to want to include this, but I sometimes find the guided meditation a little distracting mm. because it's like, I'll be thinking about, I'll be concentrating on the breath, on the breath, and they say, if your mind has wandered, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, I was concentrated. And <laughs> yeah. now you just no, no, I, I do know what you're talking about. You, one of the reasons I like it is because it's like when I try to do it on my own, I like almost try to mimic a guided meditation. So I'm like, first, think about the big toe on your left foot. Now, think about, and then I'm like, have I, should I have moved, should I move to the knees now? Like, should I be letting go of the knees? And then it's like, it takes out the portion of me that has to think about what I'm meditating about. And so I can just focus on the meditation. Anyway, to, to close out this episode, we have a little thing. We don't know if it's going to work at all. Dance. (laughs) I wish. (laughs) You can dance. Dancing, too, is a form of meditation. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, we just had an idea. <laughs> no, a guided, a guided meditation. I Actually, I was li- recently listening to a guided meditation, and I was like, I felt so under a spell that I was like, isn't it wild that kind of anyone can read the script? So basically, I've, I'm just going to lead a very short meditation. I don't recommend you really use this as um, your (laughs) perception of what meditation is, because it's, I just don't really trust myself to give a good experience of it, but it might be cool, and it might take out the step of actually having to, like, close out this podcast, Google, like, go onto YouTube, be like, five-minute meditation, and look it up. Um, So I'm just going to read a little script I found on mindful.org or it's based off a script that I found in mindful.org. So, I hope you're seated, if you can be, um, in a comfortably upright position. This is not going to work, because I'm going to be too giggly. Well, I guess I'm here. That you'll be I'm still, no, I'm going to, huh? That you'll be giggly. 
Why don't you be giggly? You can do it. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try again. You want to be seated in a comfortably upright position. Begin by bringing your attention into your body. You can close your eyes if that's comfortable for you. You can notice your body seated wherever you're seated, feeling the weight of your body on the chair, on the floor. Take a few deep breaths. As you take a deep breath, bring in more oxygen, enlivening the body. As you exhale, have a sense of relaxing more deeply. You can notice your feet on the floor, notice the sensations of your feet touching the floor, the weight and pressure, vibration, heat. You can notice your legs against the chair, pressure, heaviness, lightness. Notice your back against the chair. Bring your attention into your stomach area. If your stomach is tense or tight, let it soften. Take a breath. Notice your hands. Are your hands tense or tight? See if you can allow them to soften. Notice your arms. Feel any sensation in your arms. Let your shoulders be soft. Notice your neck and throat. Let them be soft. Relax. Let your face and facial muscles be soft. Then notice your whole body present. Take one more breath. Be aware of your whole body as best you can. Take a breath. And then when you're ready, you can open your eyes. All right, so that, <laughs> I shouldn't have switched into such a loud voice. Um, I feel like I should gradually increase volume now. Um, so that was an example of kind of what a mindfulness guided meditation might sound like. Generally, it would be maybe a little bit longer, maybe read by someone who's not me and isn't giggling. Um, all right, do you, have any, do you have anything else to add about uh, mindfulness, meditation, being present, letting feelings? Um, I think one thing we may have mentioned, but just remember is give it a little time. That's mm -hmm. not to say like, you need to do it for a month and you won't feel anything. You will notice something, but it's, I used learning a language as a metaphor earlier. You won't speak French in one day, but also if you keep doing it every day, you will feel the difference mm -hmm. versus if you come back to it a week later, it might feel like you haven't put in the time, but mm -hmm. if you did seven days in a row or maybe you did four days in the week, there's a consistency yeah. that you'll start to see results. Yeah. yeah Harvard says eight weeks. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, th that Harvard study has been quoted a lot, but it, you know, there's, there's lots of studies to be done with dosing, but yeah, I think that's, I think that's good advice. All right. Um, thanks for joining me. Um, and I'll talk to you later. Talk to you later. Oh, also one more thing. Uh, besides being mindful, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. <laughs> I, I've been forgetting to add that on here, but you know, it would really help us out. Um, we're, we're a little podcast. We're a little Zoom podcast in our living rooms, respectively. Um, and if you thought that there was something of value in this or other episodes, that will help people find us and it will help us continue doing this. Um, anyway, in addition to that, we hope that everyone's staying safe. We hope that your family's safe 
and that you're feeling okay and that your mental health is so good that you never need to meditate again. <laughs> All right. We'll be back next week. Thank you. <laughs> Bye.